Just want to make note uh, briefly that yesterday we had a presbytery. Uh, Pastor Bill and I drove to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, City Life Church uh, hosted uh, presbytery. They don't have a, a normal uh, owned building like we do. Uh, they use other uh, rented space. They rented space actually yesterday at, uh, at MIT on MIT campus. I don't know about you, Bill, uh, Bill but I felt a little smarter just being uh, at MIT. Honestly, it was the first time I was there. Uh, but a great reminder always, uh, Presbytery, that uh, we are not alone, uh, that even in our uh, southern New England region, uh, God is at work greatly. Uh, even in our uh, denomination in this region, we have dozens of churches. Uh, in fact, yesterday, a couple of additional churches were particularized, which is language referring to a church becoming a full-fledged church with a session uh, called pastor. And so, very encouraging. There is a lot of uh, church planting efforts uh, in, our, in our presbytery, which is a great encouragement. Uh, a young man was examined yesterday for ordination. Uh, he graduated from seminary and had his ceremony Friday night, came to Presbyterian, was examined uh, yesterday, and is called to a university ministry. Uh, and then a couple of people came under care of the Presbytery, including, including uh, our own, uh, Jonathan Keller, um, who works with uh, Pastor Lucas as an RUF intern. So it was encouraging to hear his testimony and sense of call uh, to serve the Lord in, in the ministry. So just a few words about Presbytery. If you would turn to Matthew 16, uh, this is a chapter as we continue in this gospel that is worth a few words by way of uh, introduction, which is what I want to provide. Uh, Matthew 16 is probably the most important transition or turning point in the gospel and the way it unfolds. Uh, not only for the first time in the gospel, here in chapter 16, does Jesus begin to reveal the necessity of his suffering in verse 20, if you look there, uh, or 21, that he must suffer, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be crucified, be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the first time in the gospel that Jesus begins to mention this, and it is very significant. It begins to uh, give new shape to the gospel. Of course, this would have shook uh, and did shake uh, the minds and the hearts of the disciples. We'll look next week at how Peter responded to those words. Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus for saying this. This shall never happen to you. The necessity of the suffering of Jesus and what this means for us. But also here in this chapter, uh, which we'll look at as well next week, is the great confession that Peter gives of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then those all-important words that Jesus gives in response... In verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now our text this morning is the first 12 verses of chapter 16 preceding what I've just read. But what I've just read are important words for a couple of reasons here this morning. One, they teach us that faith, biblical saving faith, is not the result ultimately of the reason or intellect or mind of man. It is the result of divine revelation, a supernatural work and act of God. That is so significant. But two, as we'll see in the passage, the presence or the absence of this faith has a determining influence on your understanding, on your perception, on your thinking of 
reality on one's attitude about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that play out in a way in these first 12 verses. And so the text before us, and really all of chapter 16, is of such great relevance for us living today because it teaches us that the presence or the absence of this faith actually becomes a lens through which people perceive reality, the world, people, the lens through which we understand and base our knowledge. How do we know what we know? What's the foundation of our understanding and our knowledge? This is why the Bible uh, describes believing this faith or believing as seeing. Those without faith are said to be blind in the Scriptures. Not physically blind. They fail to see through a lens, that lens that is able to perceive and understand reality. What God has made. Who God is. So let me just give you one passage and then we'll look at Matthew 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But our God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, those without faith have blinded minds. A blinded mind. They do not see or perceive the things of God or what God has made in the way the Christian does. But for us, God has opened the mind and the heart to see and perceive the glory of God, His purposes, uh, and His world. So we look now at Matthew chapter 16, and we see this uh, unfold a bit before us. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Listen now to God's word. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Well, we see Jesus here interacting with two groups of people. He's interacting with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the first four verses, and then he's interacting with his own disciples in the remaining uh, section. And you can sense the, the kind of apologetic tone in Jesus' words, particularly with the Pharisees, and I want to reflect that sort of tone this morning. He's defending his own ministry. He's defending his own mighty works and what those works point to, what they demonstrate. He's defending a right way of thinking about things while calling out the faulty thinking of the Pharisees. And to safeguard against this faulty thinking from spreading into the minds of his own disciples, he uses a metaphor, he uses a picture, and that picture is yeast, leaven. So he says later with his disciples in verse 6, watch, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look out for this, this kind of thinking. Now, while at first they think it is a reference to physical bread, they later, of course, realize that he's speaking about the false teaching and faulty thinking of the Pharisees, this kind of poisonous thinking that spreads. Verse 12 says, Then they understood. He didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeast spreads. And that's Jesus' point. He's warning here against an entire system of teaching and way of thinking, a kind of culture that can spread and be pervasive. And we all know how ideas, ways of thinking can be very pervasive. They can begin to shape entire organizations, institutions, even societies or an entire nation can have a particular way of thinking. Just yesterday in conversing with uh, intern Jonathan Keller over uh, lunch, we were talking about uh, what are different mottos or slogans that represent uh, kinds of thinking in our own culture. And he said one recently that I've heard is, live your truth. I had not heard that before, and I thought to myself, wow, how dangerous that kind of thinking could be. Not only because it encompasses all of life, it's not just an idea, live this. It's experiential, it's practical, but it's also dangerous because, of course, it's highly subjective. It's yours, whatever yours might be. But it's also dangerous because it suggests that truth, something firmly fixed, is determined by any person. It's not live your dreams, it's live your truth. How much of an attack this really is upon the claims of the Christian faith. We, we might think of Hollywood as a kind of pervasive way of thinking or culture in the country or world, or the influential politics of Washington, or the thinking and the spin shaped by media, or the, the kinds of culture that are fostered in certain academic circles, corporations, religious institutions. And Jesus is warning against a way of thinking that is dangerous and poisonous. And what he does is he speaks about a way of thinking that we are to avoid, but also a way of thinking and an attitude that we are to embrace and foster. The way of thinking to avoid is captured in his interaction there in those first four verses with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What does verse 1 tell us? 
they, the Pharisees and Sadducees, came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. We might, we might say that the way uh, or the thinking to avoid characterized here by these groups is a pessimistic skepticism about the Lord Jesus. A cynicism. It's a skeptical, a pessimistic kind of skepticism about him. Because they're not coming with questions. They're not coming with inquiry. They're not even coming with investigation. They are coming to test. They're coming to destroy. They've made up their minds. Uh, This is what has characterized uh, their view and attitude toward Jesus throughout Matthew. It's very likely, of course, that these groups, these individuals, would have either seen many of the works that Jesus has already performed or certainly heard testimony about the fact that he fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, healed the Canaanite woman's daughter, walked on water, healed a mute man, healed the centurion's servant, healed the blind man, healed the paralytic, calmed two storms. And despite those evidences, what Jesus has demonstrated, they seek to test. They demand another sign. Show me another sign. Let's see something else. They want to discredit him. And while you and I live two millennia later, in a radically different culture than in Jesus' day in many ways, we have people, we have movements, we have systems of thinking all around that greatly oppose uh, biblical Christianity and the worldview represented there. We think of words like secularism, the, the rejection of the voice of the church or the voice of God and His Word in the public sphere. Or you think of words like atheism or naturalism. uh, The rejection of a supernatural God or a supernatural reality. Or a word like moral relativism. Right and wrong is purely subjective. Whatever other isms you might add. Significant ways of thinking that are undercurrents or main currents throughout our society. I remember just getting a small taste of this my freshman, freshman year of college. It was a prerequisite biology class. And at the beginning of the semester, the professor made it very clear that not only did he not have religious convictions, but he was very committed and an advocate of Darwinian evolution. And then I remember during one class, in the course of a lecture, he simply made a passing comment that, quote, there are no absolute truths. And he continued on. And one of the brighter students in the class shot up his hand and said, excuse me, professor, did I hear you correctly that you said there are no absolute truths? He said, that's exactly what you heard. And the student wisely said, are you sure? And he's, (laughs) no joke, he said, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm sure. Absolutely, I'm sure that there are no absolutes. The student actually exposed the professor's faulty and kind of contradictory thinking. He was absolutely sure there's no absolute truth. His own thinking contradicted uh, itself. Well, Jesus does something a bit similar. Instead of dancing to the tune of the Pharisees who are demanding another sign, show us another sign, bent on testing 
Jesus, when they've already witnessed the works of Christ, what does he do? Jesus exposes their faulty way of thinking. It's really a marvelous thing, this text, what Jesus does. There in verse 2 and 3. He says, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You've heard the saying, uh, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the evening, or in the morning, sailors uh, warning. In other words, he's saying you... You guys pride yourself on your analytical abilities, your careful observations, your sound reasoning. And doesn't this reflect so well our society today? We can forecast the weather, sort of, sort of. Uh, People can predict the markets. We can apply analytical expertise, statistical data to determine just how long we're going to live and how much we need to make it through retirement. Experts in many ways. And Jesus is simply saying, if you've shown yourself capable in observing and reasoning through these areas, why will you not also apply the same reasoning and the same analysis to my supernatural works and conclude that indeed the kingdom of God has come? The kingdom of God is at hand. That's his thinking. But it also goes to show that while there were clear reasons to believe in the Lord Jesus... As the Christ, their reason alone would not bring them to this saving faith. That's why I read verse 17 there in Matthew 16 in the beginning. It requires a revelation of God, a work of God supernaturally. James Boyce said of this text, they did not see because they would not see. There are great reasons to believe in the Christian faith. Great reasons. Moral reasons, historical reasons, philosophical reasons, experiential reasons. But people remain in unbelief. Because God's divine intervention, revelation are necessary. Faith is not caused by reason, but it is reasonable. Have you thought about the reasonableness of your own Christian faith. Is it reasonable? Jesus was giving reasons to the Pharisees. He was pointing to evidence. Have we thought about the reasonableness of our own faith? The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. We need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. All the more in a culture and a society that is cynical, skeptical, pessimistic. Our faith indeed is reasonable. But Jesus does not just expose their faulty thinking. He actually pronounces a sentence upon them in verse 4. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. It's important to note those words, seeks for a sign, are in the present continuous, which simply means they are seeking for a sign and they're going to continue seeking and they're going to continue seeking. One sign after another. They're not going to stop seeking. 
Jesus doesn't say that no sign will be given. He's already given signs. He's already demonstrated His powerful works. The evil generation are those who keep on seeking and will not recognize the sign already given in Jesus Christ. It seems like some in our day, in fact, seeking is the journey. Seeking is the end. Kind of an ongoing pursuit. Never arriving at an end. What is this sign of Jonah? Remember, Jesus has already made mention of this back in chapter 12. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. It's a clear reference to the death and the resurrection of Christ. But perhaps the sign is suggesting something else as well. Think about Jonah. Think about the prophet and his call. Not only was he called out of Israel, a people in his day who were adulterous in their relationship to God, uh, complacent about the things of God. But Jonah himself, we know, was reluctant in responding to God's call. How could God have concern about his enemies? While God's people were complacent, they simply could not stand the possibility of God taking his interest elsewhere to his enemies. And we know what happened when Jonah preached to the Ninevites. From one end to the other, people repented. People responded to the message. Which would have meant that Jonah likely would return to Israel having to say, you complacent Israelites, God has taken his word, God has taken his presence, God has taken his mighty works elsewhere. Elsewhere. That too, perhaps, is the sign of Jonah. It's a direct correlation to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to first century Judaism. And what do we read in our own text in verse 4? No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. He's taking his word and his gospel and his grace elsewhere. Jesus is patient. Jesus is long-suffering. But eventually, he will take his gospel elsewhere. Now, that's what we're fighting for, is it not? We want the gospel to prevail here. We want people to respond. We don't want the presence of the Lord to be taken elsewhere alone. And so their faulty thinking is evidenced in their rejection of Christ. But Jesus does not want this for his disciples. He doesn't want this for us. So that's what we see in verses 5 through 12. Jesus is alone with the disciples, and he warns them two times in verse 6 and 11. Beware of the yeast of of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the kind of thinking that blinds a person from seeing the glorious works of God. Now, I don't know if Matthew or the other gospel writers intended for this interaction to be humorous, but it sure comes across that way each time I've read this text. Beware of the leaven. And they began discussing among themselves, we forgot the bread. (laughs) 
we forgot to bring food. That must be what he's talking about. Peter, you forgot the bread. (laughs) No, Andrew, you forgot the bread. And Jesus says in verse 9, Don't you remember the loaves left over over after the feeding of the 4,000 and the loaves left over after the feeding of the 5,000? And Jesus says, Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet get it? Do you not yet understand? Here's what Jesus is calling the disciples to foster. Here's the way of thinking. It's perceptive faith. Oh, you have little faith. It's about faith. Perceptive faith. Perceptive faith, biblical faith, is not a blind leap. It's not an irrational step into the unknown. Yes, it is the result of God's grace and revelation, but it rests upon the facts, the historical events of Christ's life and death and resurrection. And sometimes, like the disciples, it's the eyes in our head that simply dominate our view of life and the things around us. Jesus is warning them about a destructive way of thinking, and they can only think of physical bread. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, he says... Are your hearts hard? Do you have eyes but fail to see? There's that theme. He wants them to think and see differently through a different lens. It's through a perceptive faith. What does this look like? This is the Christian life. I'll suggest a few ways. Perceptive faith sees and recognizes the sufficient provision supplied in Jesus Christ, for one. Perceptive faith sees and recognizes the sufficient provision supplied in Christ. Uh, We could recognize many ways in which this perceptive faith is carried out in the Christian's life, but this is one. Uh, This picture of Jesus with the disciples reminds us how quickly, how naturally we will measure our strength, our provision, our ability, our power, our potential as salt and light in the world by what we have rather than who we have. So naturally, so quickly. Oh, this is all I have. Therefore, that's the power I have. That's the influence I have. What does Paul say in Romans 8? What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's a perceptive faith. In the midst of weakness or limitation, I I believe, I see something different, I understand something different because of who is with me. Sometimes the eyes in our head dominate our view of life. We forgot the bread. Our strength our power in the midst of trial or weakness or in the midst of an unbelieving world, it's not determined by how much bread we have, how much money we have, but what faith and trust we place in who we have, who is with us. Secondly, a perceptive faith sees in Jesus Christ and His Word all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A right knowledge of myself, the purpose of life, 
human identity, the purpose of the world, the purpose of science, what joy and peace truly are. These ultimately do not come from the mind of man. They come from the mind of God. That's why Paul says that we heard read earlier in Colossians 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What an amazing statement. He's the creator of all things. If I'm going to see things as they are, I need to have his lens. Be united to him, bound to his word. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It comes through the lens of his revelation. And then I would close by saying, and perhaps most importantly, a perceptive faith ceases from a continual pursuit after signs from God and comes to rest in the sign, the sign of the cross. Perceptive faith says, Lord, you do not need to show me anything more. I have all that I need in the cross of Jesus Christ. People can become wearied in seeking and seeking and seeking. You do not need to seek any further. You do not need to seek anymore. He has revealed himself most clearly in his death and in his resurrection. And how privileged we are as God's people that he has made that known to us. We closed the presbytery meeting yesterday with the song, Jesus Paid It All. I want to read some of those words. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. O praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Let's pray together. O gracious God, how we thank you for what you have made known to us as your people. How you are our portion, our hope. And you are our rock and foundation upon which we have our understanding. We don't know all, Lord, but you have given us through your word the knowledge of your glory, of your goodness, of the end for which you have made all things and made us for yourself. We pray, O Lord, that we might know the reason or reasons for the hope that we have. How we thank you that we are a hope-filled people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would fill us uh, with thanksgiving and joy for what we have. Uh, Lord, fill us with zeal and urgency to make known this hope and this gospel uh, to a world whose minds are blind. And how, Lord, we know this and believe this with humility ourselves. But we believe it boldly. and We make it known boldly. For you have called us to this very work. Lord, continue to guide us and lead us in this worship, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.